0: My guests on today's show are Beezer Clarkson, Chris Duvos, and Joelle Caden, three of the most respected investors in venture capital funds, manning their forts at Sapphire Ventures, Ahoy Capital, and Accolade Partners, respectively. Each is a past guest on the show, and we've replayed those conversations in the feed. In a far more challenging environment after last year's public market growth sell-off and tightening of purse strings in private markets, we convened to discuss the state of the venture capital industry. Our conversation covers what got us here, re-ups and new fund decisions facing allocators, challenges for venture capitalists and their portfolio companies, funding discipline across stages, dry powder, tourists exiting the game, and valuations. We discussed the potential winners and losers coming out of this trough, and close with exciting opportunities and a current perspective on the blockchain. Before we get going, we did it! We're number one! Well, sort of. In a recently released survey, our new show, Private Equity Deals, got named the number one podcast for private equity dealmakers. That's pretty cool, and we're just getting going. Releasing this Wednesday, Bottled Water is featured on episode two of season two. Continuing the season's theme of companies you know, we'll discuss One Rock Capital's carve-out of Nestle's North American water business, which includes brands Poland Spring, Deer Park, Arrowhead, and a host of others that together comprise the number one market share in North American bottled water. Search and subscribe to Private Equity Deals on your favorite podcast player to listen in. The cool kids have figured out that Private Equity Deals is the hot new show. So join in the crowd, hear why, and tell all the other cool kids you know about it. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy this Venture Capital panel with Beezer Clarkson, Chris Duvos, and Joelle Caden. Chris, Beezer, Joelle, wow, this is a real treat.
1: Ted, you and I are like the thorns among the roses. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, this is going to be really fun to dive into what's going on in the venture landscape. And why don't one of you start by just giving the perspective of what got us here over the last couple of years?
1: Well, look, we lived through a time of extraordinarily accommodative Fed policy. Now, I'm not a, a macro economist, so I, you, know, you got to take everything I say with a grain of salt. But there was a long time where people were looking for growth, and growth is always found in the longest-dated, furthest-out-of-the-money options and venture was just sexy and we lived through a period where people were just piling in and there were plenty of investors looking for growth and plenty of entrepreneurs willing to oblige by becoming operators right i actually look back at this kind of explosion in growth the harbinger of that was like the start of the entrepreneur investor you know entrepreneur friendly types at started to rise in like 2010, 2011, where all of a sudden venture wasn't this like secret cabal and anybody who had been a head of biz dev somewhere could actually like plant a flag and raise a fund. And so we saw this like Cambrian explosion through the early 2010s of venture funds. And the returns looked pretty good because everything looked good, especially coming out of the the GFC. And so it was this kind of like self, uh, you know, self-feeding frenzy, almost this like recursive loop that made venture like the it girl of asset classes, that's come to an end, but I think that's how we got here. Beezer?
2: Can I say the unpopular thing, which is LPs were just as complicit in all of this as anybody else because Fed the Beast invested in the funds and LPs have a habit of if they find something that's working, you want to put more money in it. But if putting more money in it means the funds get larger and larger, then that we also had that happening.
3: Yeah, and the only thing I'd add is I think the last time We had a significant correction in venture post the collapse of the internet bubble and people stopped investing in venture. Those ended up being the best vintages, particularly some of the investments that were made during the global financial crisis. And so whereas investment committees for the better part of 2000 to 2010 were allergic to venture and never wanted to hear about it again, all of a sudden looking backwards, they realized that was the greatest opportunity and they weren't gonna make the same mistake twice.
0: It sounds very Chuck Prince-ish. You know, the the music was playing and everybody's dancing. Back then, everyone castigated him for saying that. But there is this element of rationality to it, right? Even though people felt like things were getting frothy, people continued to invest. How did you think about your participation, each of you, over those last couple of years before last year? Chris, why don't you jump in?
1: Well, look, I think everybody had a huge case of FOMO. And that, I think, is the genesis of the, you know, when the music's playing, you got to keep dancing sentiment. But I'll actually say what I think is an unpopular thing too, or maybe it's unpopular to me internally because it creates a huge amount of cognitive dissonance. I just pulled up the benchmark data for the dot-com bust. We all lived through that. And we would have these funds that it was like, Water torture. You know, they were just trickling away to, you know, asymptoting to zero. I mean, how can you be down every quarter 20% for like eight, nine, 10 quarters? We saw that with even like some of our best funds when I was at Princeton's endowment. But in the end, those funds, they weren't great, but a lot of them returned money. I think the benchmark actually is like positive, like 1.07% or something for the 2000 vintage. So it actually becomes this question of if the secret sauce of venture is that we've got these stale prices and, you know, we, we have this like interim volatility that, that kind of like tosses and turns us all over the place. But at the end of the day, if you can just hold on long enough, you'll actually potentially get your money back even in a bad scenario. Maybe it won't meet the opportunity cost of equity capital and all that stuff. But maybe the risk premia all arises from the horizon premium, which is just like being able to take a longer term bet than the next guy. So, you know, off my philosophical course there, I actually think people like started looking back at that and saying like, if that's the worst it can get, maybe it's not so bad. And so why don't we pile into this stuff? Beezer? What
2: was the question?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the question was, as the market got hot, even if you felt it was hot, what did you do during that period of time?
2: I think I have a more prosaic answer. I can't do the Chris lovely dialogue. I do have my thesaurus out. I was going to attempt a few, but I think I'm going to go. (laughs) I learned this in conversation actually with the good people at Floodgate, which is if you just consistently pace yourself in the up market and the down market, you bounder the size of the dollars you do every year. You win some, you lose some, who knows, but it keeps you from doing too much crazy, right? Stopping too quickly, to Joelle's point, or piling in too much. And so we just apply that math. We try to be consistent in the dollars that we deploy into funds every year. We try to make the best choices that we can, and we'll see how the cards fall. But a lot of it is just the consistency. To Chris's point, history has taught everybody you don't stop investing. Hitting the pedal to the metal and then pumping the brakes can be problematic on the reverse. So we just... Tried to keep going as best as we could.
0: Yeah, Joelle, one of the things related to that, there is that concept of, okay, we're just going to deploy the same amount every year, but over the last couple of years, you had funds coming back faster and larger, and then you have it on the other side where you have funds that you are raising. How did that play out over the last couple of years?
3: It was very frustrating because, and this is not just for us, I think this is for every institutional allocator. Everybody has a model of deployment. And when the cycle goes from the promise two to three years to one year, your model gets completely shot. Not only did that happen, but also the funds got bigger. And then there was massive product proliferation. So everybody had an opportunity fund, a growth fund, or different sector funds where they were specializing. And I hesitate to use that illegal term, pay to play, but I think we all know that you know there was some implicit understanding that in order to preserve your allocation, you really needed to participate broadly. So it wasn't just firms coming back to market so quickly, but firms having multiple products. I mean, it was a dizzying pace of commitments. And so it's very difficult to explain to prospective LPs why you're coming back to market with our funds, you know, Two years sooner than we had originally articulated through no fault of our own because we wanted to maintain the ability to support our managers as they raise subsequent funds.
0: When that's happening, ultimately then your LPs have the same problem. There's more money that you're deploying coming back. How do you think through what became the denominator effect as when public markets sold off and Chris said, Oh, maybe stale prices are okay in venture because if you wait long enough, the businesses do smooth out the volatility how did you manage the deployment cycle and helping your clients think through how to do it on their side?
3: For a while, it all worked, right? Because we had a very vibrant IPO market. We also invest in growth equity, where there were a lot of transactions of companies getting bought by financial buyers and strategic buyers. So for a while, you know, we were sending money back to the LPs. And then to your point, the music stopped and has ground to a halt. So I don't think we're any different than anyone else. Everybody's trying to figure out what is the appropriate valuation for a lot of these illiquid assets, since we know what's happened to the denominator, which is the public markets have collapsed, bonds performed horribly. The only thing that did well last year was oil and gas and some multi-strategy hedge funds. Most people don't have enough exposure to that to matter. So I think what you're seeing is a flight to quality where people are being much more disciplined in terms of re-ups with managers and also sizing things appropriately. And frankly, you're going to see a lot of turnover in the LP base for managers broadly as people see who really performed well and what was a, a very promiscuous environment and those people who stayed at the party too long, as my dear partner, Ophel, is inclined to say.
2: I'd also say that we're hearing from our fellow LPs that they are stuck on committing this year, potentially next year, because of exactly this. They did so much because they felt they had to, to preserve relationships. And they were looking to make money for whatever institution they were working for. So they're 3X over, plus the NAVs up. people haven't written things down. And so the math of their portfolio allocation says no mass for 12, 24 months. And so I don't know if GPs understand we're all party of this making, but People are going to come back and be like, we're ready to fundraise. And LPs might be like, yeah, I'm not actually in a position to deploy because these things need to shift before the model, if you've got multiple strategies, right? If you're doing privates and publics and real assets, says, I'm, I'm overcommitted already to venture and can't add more. And I, I don't think we've seen that yet. I think that will start playing out in very painful ways this year. One little point on that score. By the way, some of those asset classes
3: might actually perform a lot better than venture, like credit or maybe emerging markets finally will have their day in the sun. I'm not an expert on that at all, but allocators have more than venture to invest in and venture managers seem to forget that. They think they're the only asset class under the sun and that it's a must-have asset
1: class. It's hilarious because I remember being at Princeton and we had, you know, our Monday meeting and you know, we'd have Peter Stein come in and talk about hedge funds and domestic equity and John Erickson would come in and talk about international equity. And yeah, we'd sit there in, in venture world and, you know, Peter Stein would talk about you manager and their alpha and their omega and their gamma and their, you know, all these like Greek letters and have all this quantitative stuff. And it would come to us and we'd say, you know, we like this venture firm because of the team They've got a great team. And you, you sit there and you feel silly. And I think venture people think that that's perfectly okay. Like, oh, they've got great vibes. Like, we're investing on vibes today. But like, when you're sitting at an asset allocator where there's a complex lombada of risk and return that gets danced into these sweaty Monday meetings, you realize pretty quickly the venture doesn't have a monopoly on wisdom, even though people in the zip code that I'm sitting in, nine four. 301 think it does the other thing i'll say joel you brought up a great point about product proliferation and like i don't mean to sound like the cranky old guy but we've seen this before where the velocity got really fast and you know in the 2000s all the stuff and funds were their own growth funds, right? Fund N plus one was the growth or the opportunity fund for your prior fund back then. Now we've just started calling them opportunity funds, which by the way, is just a sneaky way around the issue of my LPs don't want me to get too big. So I'll leave my core fund the same size, but I'll raise this opportunity fund. And I think we've been whistling as an industry past the graveyard on this one for a while, because what we saw in 2000 and 2001, 2002 is all of a sudden you find these companies that have like these distressed fundraises, and you actually find the same fund. Owning two different securities, which may be in conflict with each other, and maybe one fund has capital and can do the play to play, and I think people have kind of totally missed the boat on this. And I bring this up with GPs, and they say, "Oh no, we'll we'll figure it out." And I think it's a recipe for angry LPs.
0: I'd love to turn to clicking down on this for each of you of how you're responding, and maybe it's easiest to break that up into what you're doing in your portfolios with re-ups, and what you're doing when you're seeing. New funds, or how you're treating new funds, and Joelle, why don't you kick that off?
3: Sure. With respect to re-ups, we're doing a complete re-underwrite of each manager, which, by the way, is what we've done historically. We just didn't have a lot of time to do it in the height of the frenzy of the 21, particularly 21 period. And I think we've made some painful decisions to transition away from managers that we've had, in some cases, you know, a longstanding relationship with. In some cases maybe only been an investor for a couple of funds. Um, Some of it has to do with massive expansion of fund size. I mean, when funds triple over four years, it's not what we thought we were going to be investing in when we first committed to a smaller team that had a great thesis and a great opportunity to outperform. We don't tend to like larger funds and we don't like later stage investing largely because we think that is an area that is sort of more correlated to the public markets, you know, and an arbitrage opportunity. And so in a period of massive great inflation, that's the area that's going to prove to be most susceptible to correction. We're always open for business for new funds. And, you know, we we as a fund of funds, like anyone else, we offer access and we offer historically the opportunity to identify funds earlier on in our are their evolution before they become institutionally well-known. And, you know, we've just continued to do that. We're actually making a number of new investments, both in venture and growth, to first-time managers or first institutional funds with the hope those people are hungry and driven are going to outperform. So a fine-tooth comb on existing managers and a really high bar for re-ups, and then excitement when we do find new managers.
0: So, Joelle, you mentioned on the re-ups, of some of those that you've been with for a while, a significant increase in size being one of the kill criteria. Curious, what are some of the other things in some of the relationships you've chosen not to continue with managers relative to some of the other ones where you have?
3: Yeah. So, you know, a couple things. One, firms doing what we didn't think they were going to do, i.e. you were going to be investing at a certain point in the cycle and you've completely changed that rationalizing that because of the environment, you were quote disciplined and you invested early, but at crazy high valuations. So, Like, that makes no sense. Also, you know, when funds get bigger, the team gets bigger. So like, if you're betting on three people to do the investing and suddenly it's 10 people and most of those people don't have investment backgrounds or long track records, it's just not the same team. And, you know, for people to say they're going to learn, I just don't want them learning on my LP's money.
0: And then in this environment where capital is more scarce, what is it that really lights you up about a new fund that you choose to back?
3: Well, most of the people that we back have had some track record at another firm and are betting on themselves, taking the risk in a really challenging environment to start a fund. And so, you know, they're usually people that we've been tracking in one way, shape, or form that then decide to go out on their own or, you know, had a very modestized fund and now are raising, as I said, a, a real institutional fund
2: and also in areas that we find interesting. These I agree with everything Joelle said. She said it better than I ever could, so not going to repeat it, but I would double click on the what's exciting and new. When I think of the people that we have backed that were new last year, new to us, sometimes new to the world, and we would probably get excited about a similar theme as far as type of investor going forward, it's people that help you access. Sometimes it's new markets, not meaning a new geography, but a new way of thinking. We've had generative AI in different forms in our portfolio for a while, but maybe there's a manager who has a new thesis on it or a take on it. Or when you look at the digitization of the software stack in, say, fintech or in other areas, and they're playing that, that way of thinking about it in a new way, that can bring something new and exciting. It's hard to predict. I, as an LP, don't spend time trying to predict what's going to be interesting, but you know it when you see it because it feels fresh. Maybe it's not a newer investor, but it's a new way of thinking about something. And that filter is what always kind of gets us keen. And you the authenticity of it resonates. And I'm just going to say that because a lot of times you get six decks and they all read exactly the same and you can't remember them. And then even if someone's going after the exact same whatever it is, there's something about the authentic voice that I think comes through, at least for me.
0: Beezer, one question for you on re-ups. You mentioned as sort of part of a plan to put roughly the same dollars to work year after year. When you have that cadence that's coming back larger and faster, how did you make those allocation decisions in your portfolio?
2: Yeah, it was hard. I'm not going to pretend it wasn't hard and it wasn't fun for the extent of whether or not funds are relevant criteria. We like to enjoy what we do. There were some times where if as an LP, you look through and you say, okay, if this fund is typically every 36 months and now it's every 18 months, I can take the same check and have it because in my portfolio, I'm getting the same exposure. And I many LPs I know so had to solve that way because it was an obvious mathematical way of solving. There were some times where we were in the same situation that Joelle was in, where funds we call it mature out of our program because they just get much bigger than what we focus on. We focus on early stage venture, and there's some fund sizes that we just feel become too big for us. And so we had some managers mature out. We don't think they're bad managers necessarily. We wish them the best of luck, just we had to say goodbye. Yeah, you have to make a lot of hard decisions and you kind of play with the different options that you have. And then sometimes there's some where you say, you know what, it's faster and this is a big check, but we have conviction and you choose to go down that path.
0: Chris, I know you always have something to add. So uh, (laughs) re-ups and new commitments.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I've built this Kafka-esque prison for myself, which is I try to run a really concentrated portfolio and at the same time seek out new managers. So when you're trying to have sub 10 managers in a fund, it's really hard to add new folks, especially when you've got you know high conviction. So sometimes I lose sleep over what's out there that I'm missing that I might have done as a younger lad. But one thing, just like Joel and Beezer said, I really believe in Mike Maples' dictum, your fund size is your strategy. And we have a very specific strategy around where we play in the market. And a lot of our managers have grown out of that. There's this kind of law of financial levitation where GPs get addicted to fund size. And we hear like these amazing rationalizations. Beezer and I know this one manager in common where you know they started with a pretty modestly sized fund. Beezer and I were both in their first institutional fund and they promised that they would never be bigger than first round. And then one day they announced a fund that was like, Five X that benchmark, and I said, "Why are you doing that?" And they said, "Well, we feel like we're short stacked at the poker table because we're sitting at the poker table with guys like Andreessen and Kosla, and you know they named like six or seven funds that they compete with, and I and they're like, and we have to play with them. We have to be able to play and lean into later rounds with them." And I said, "They may not believe it, and you may not believe it, but those guys have a fundamentally different cost of capital than I want you to have." And if that's the game that you're going to play, we're going to have to step back. And it made me think of, you know, David Swenson once said the secret to Yale's success in private markets was that they got off the bus one stop too early rather than one stop too late. And so we've been trying to do that. But really still, I'm just the mayor of Reuplandia right now.
0: (laughs) So I'd love to hear your thoughts from a manager's perspective. So you have managers coming back into these dynamics. What recommendations are you giving the managers in your portfolio?
1: Since 2018, actually, we've aggressively leaned into quote unquote grown ups in our portfolio. We were doing a lot of emerging managers, and really like rookie capital allocators, which was great and it was fun. And some of those have done really well for us. But we've been since 2018 really leaning into people who are well-trained. So like one example of that is Sunil Nagaraj at Ubiquity. He would really kind of learned a lot at Bessemer before spinning out and he's a really well-trained investor while having that great entrepreneur sensibility and a, a real kind of as he would describe it, you know, kind of nerdiness about him. So I feel like we've got, you know, really thoughtful managers, but I, you know, I I don't want to inhale my own smoke on that. What I am telling people is, is at the end of the day, somebody is going to pay you, whether it's an acquirer or the public markets is going to pay a company for creating sustainable unit economics at scale. Like, how do you get to that? And I think today, you know, we've lived through a 12 year period where financing risk was non-existent. And that's really distorted how people think about venture. And I think now that capital is becoming scarce, again, there's going to be a real premium on getting to the sustainable unit economics at scale sooner rather than later. So we're spending a lot of you know time talking to our managers about that. The other thing I'm spending time talking to my managers about is just being really ruthless about their portfolio construction and really kind of metering out their reserves and making sure they're not putting good money after bad. Because we lived through a time where everybody was moving at quote unquote startup speed, and it Henry McCants from Greylock has, his words ring in my head. Venture works really well when capital is expensive and time is cheap when time gets dear and capital gets cheap. watch out, and that's you know the period we've lived through, and so maybe you know we can like retroactively fix some of the problems that we've built into our portfolios.
3: One thing that I find completely shocking since although you know, I founded at Manage Accolade, which is an investment management firm. I am basically a professional fundraiser. And I think venture capitalists are painfully naive about who is their investor base and putting themselves in the shoes of the LP and what some of the issues that the LP has when they go to their investment committee making recommendation. And I think you need to be able to count the vote, so to speak, which is you need to be able to know who's going to be back, who's capital constrained, who you feel the strategy isn't working. And you need to be laying that groundwork for a year or two prior to coming back to market. And I just think assuming that people are automatically going to re-up with you is just the wrong assumption. It would behoove managers to spend time counting the votes and really understanding what their sales coverage is. Actually, a lot of things they probably tell their portfolio companies to do, And they need to be cultivating different investors always.
2: So I agree with Joelle, but I'm going to ask this clarification question. How do you know what an LP really means, what they say? Because I know I sit in LPACs and the GP looks around the room and says, hey, we're coming back to market next year. What's your feedback? And everybody plays nice for all the obvious reasons. There's no incentive for them to raise their hand unless for some reason they're really going to be out and they're going to be out forever. And I think that is a mixed message to the GEP, which doesn't mean to say, I don't think they need to do their homework, but I do think LPs are not always crystal
0: clear. One of the things that's really confusing me about this environment is there is a ton of dry powder sitting in their hands. How do you think that is going to affect their portfolio companies?
1: It's interesting. I I have a very complicated set of struggles with this dry powder question, because I remember in a one... People talked about the overhang and that was going to be the cavalry that saved every portfolio company. And then it kind of dried up. A lot of funds gave back capital. I don't see that happening today, but it it kind of disappeared. And so I said, Oh, you know, am I thinking about this naively? And then I started thinking, well, what's different now than then is the amount of dry powder that's held in so few hands. And I think about some of the really big guys that raised so many funds at such high velocity and i think there's almost like kind of it's a tale of two cities like what do the mega funds do with their dry powder and by the way they're incentivized like they have whole business models that are predicated on raising you know kind of spinning that black circle over and over and over other people's money opm it's a it's a hell of a drug and so i think they've got to deploy that capital because it's a gating item to raising the next fund and whether their investors will be there or not is is another story i think this lumpiness of where the capital's held will have some really interesting impacts on how this all unfolds. Do these guys bail out their portfolios?
2: I would also say, appreciate that when people talk about dry powder, when you're an LP, what you have is an uncalled commitment, which is hanging out there and represents different emotional response and or budgetary response. And if it's, I would just say, do a PSA to GPs, please let your LPs know what you anticipate your pacing to be and how this works, because I also know LPs who are looking at that uncalled commitment and saying, because of this, I can't make future commitments because I, I have this essentially a liability on my books. And it doesn't mean to say they're not interested in that dollars is going in the ground until it just starts getting more color around what the nature of it is and when the timing of it is, it holds them back from doing more. I offer this because people think about it as a, an unmitigated positive. And I think it just depends on where you stand.
0: It feels like a lot of when this may normalize at some time in the future is somewhat related to valuations because that's where we have this skew from say the great returns in 2021 and then the softening in the public markets, but not necessarily at the same pace, the privates in 2022. I'd love to hear what you guys are seeing. Maybe we can go stage by stage, which I think fits nicely if we go Chris and Beezer and then Joel, what your GPs are seeing in terms of valuation resets, compared to what you might've seen two years ago. Chris, why don't you start maybe with the earliest stages?
1: Sure. And you know, one thing that's interesting is I actually just saw some data that I think said that seed valuations were up year over year. And anecdotally, that's what I'm hearing as well. And I think that's actually just a data composition issue because the marginal ideas aren't getting funded anymore, which in the marginal ideas would drag down the mean and median. And so we're seeing a lot of quality companies still getting funded. And because they're higher quality, it's also keeping prices firm. Somebody asked me, does that mean it's a great time to be investing because there's you know, great ideas? And I responded, it's always a great time to be investing if you got the right portfolio.
3: Yeah, I would also add, I think to that point, Chris, a lot of the later stage investors have now decided to move into seed. And so some of The promiscuity that you've alluded to comes from the lack of discipline that they had in late stage now being applied to early stage.
0: So if the seed stage hasn't really moved that much, Beezer, when you start looking at the bees in in that area, what are you seeing on valuations?
2: Well, I think the NVCA put out a report along with, um, I think it's PitchBook, that looks at these numbers. And yes, the 2021, 2022, we're seeing a retrenchment in almost every single level back to 19 or 20 pricing, which doesn't mean to say it's falling off a cliff. You just have some of that spike coming out. And anecdotally, you're here again, like very strong companies. You always have these couple that raise, I don't know what is $100 million seed round or series A, whatever it is, there's always a couple that for whatever reason have, have been able to get those valuations. But I would say, generally speaking, there seems to be a reset. And that what you hear is a lot of anecdotal commentary from GPs about how they now understand that the benchmarks for what it takes to get a Series A and Series B is different. And again, I don't think it's a cratering hole back to 2002. I think we're just looking at things that are more like 2018 or 19, where you needed some sort of metrics to raise your next round. You needed some evidence of product market fit. You needed some evidence of, to Chris's point, about what are these sustainable different cash burns you're having, like what's going on in these companies. And I think what you hear on the other side is that entrepreneurs are getting a different message than they had for two years, and changing how your company goes to market and cut some of that margin pressure out is really hard. If you've built your company for blitz scaling and all of a sudden you need to be cash flow positive, that's not a twenty-four hour change.
0: So if the seed valuations are mostly holding up, but in some of the later rounds we're seeing that contraction somewhere in that stage of growth of a company they're going to have that flat round or some of the the fundamental metrics have to catch up with that earlier valuation that hasn't really budged. Where are you seeing that across funding rounds?
3: Everybody did the green, yellow, red of their portfolio and how much cash does each portfolio company have? And you're on the right side of the angels if you have 24 months of cash because you got to realize you got to start fundraising At eighteen months, not at month twenty-four. The other thing we've seen is for companies that managers deem to be doing well, a lot of inside rounds, sort of giving more runway to those companies. So I don't think we've seen the down round and all the difficulties that are going to happen for those companies. Where to Beezer's point, there's just not enough evidence of progress and the not enough capital to support. The zillions of companies that have been created over the last cycle. So, we haven't seen that yet. I philosophically think that debt on any venture company is a disastrous idea, particularly in times like this, because the banks are not going to be patient.
0: We hear these days that companies, for lots of reasons, are reticent to have down rounds. And so, you start having preferred structures and different things that come in to let the company keep going and grow into the valuation. I'm curious what your perspectives are. Of your GPs who are encouraging companies in different ways to extend out at similar valuation levels with different structures relative to just taking that pain if we all think that the down round is going to come.
2: If I had to parse quickly in my head, I think there's some difference in how people respond based on their experience. And Fred Wilson's blogged a lot about this, meaning like I think the experience that he's had looking at down rounds versus extensions. I would presume he would respond and Union Square would respond in one way versus somebody who's feeling their way through it for the first time, which in time will only tell which is the better response, quote unquote, in this market. But we do see some variation based on the experience set. And, and you can get that in different ways within your firm, right? Sometimes the old guard can help out the newer guard and give them some pearls of wisdom.
1: Chris? I would say my crystal ball's in the shop. What I worry about a lot when, you know, we make these broad statements is, you know, we don't know if this is going to be a V-shaped downturn, a U-shaped downturn, whatever the letter, the alphabet we pick is. But the thing that's interesting is every person who's ever died has died for the same reason. Blood stops flowing to your major organs. And it happens for 800 different reasons, but that's how it happens. Companies die for one reason. They run out of cash. There's 800 reasons why that happens, but that's what actually kills them. And so we've got companies across the portfolio doing round extensions Notes, you know, you name it, you know, kind of raising capital, and I think about these things sometimes, and it's just like, you know, in some of our direct investments, I, I wonder, you know, are we just throwing a paper airplane into a dark room? If the economy stays okay, then then that plane will land fine. If you know, we're talking a year from now that things are grim, then it's just good money after bad. So really, what I think the the answer is, and I, I mean, this is a stupid answer, but it'll be like, who's lucky? That's the thing that's crazy about venture. It's like you have a whole community of people who have been lucky. Who think they're really smart and the evaluation horizons are so long, there's like no feedback loop. So, so I think time will tell on this. Yeah, I don't know. That's not a great answer, but that's what I lose a lot of sleep over.
0: You know, you go through periods like this and you get the proverbial tide going out and Warren Buffett line about who's swimming naked. I'd love to hear your thoughts on who seemed to be the tourists in this last cycle that may not be the ones who are looking so good today. Joel, why don't you start?
3: I think it's the same people who were the tourists previously. It's people who don't do this a hundred and ten percent of the time. So there were a lot of hedge funds. There were a lot of late stage capital. Those people are gone. You know, they're licking their wounds. They've spent a lot of money, and um, and so the people that I think the three of us invest in are still there, working harder than ever to try and generate the returns and work with their portfolio companies that they're so passionate about. And so, you know, crossover investors, hedge funds, late stage monies, we can pick, you know, SoftBank just said they're not making any new investments. So
2: they were probably the most guilty. So, you know, start at the top of the stack and move down. I feel both ways on this because the diversity in the ecosystem for better or for worse, seems to start in the newer people starting into venture. And we're seeing a lot of those folks leave the room. Because to Joelle's point, maybe they, this was their second gig. Maybe they were operating a company and starting a fund on the side. Maybe they were fundraising through public, like Twitters and rolling funds and new mechanisms that are out there that me as an individual, I think is awesome because it does allow for more diversification and more on paths on. So it doesn't have to be this weird ivory tower of, do you know somebody who's been doing it for 40 years, who never sends a missive out of their ivory tower? And you can sort of bring some new entrants into venture. but. Some of them weren't doing it 100% of their time. And I think this is just a really hard job to do, not being 100% of your focus. And it's not always up and to the right. And it's not always fun. And this market's just going to help people really sit with, do they want to do this or not? And it seems like for some folks, they either can't fundraise or they don't want to do it. And that's an okay answer too.
1: You know, it's funny. There's this tweet that's been going around. It's a poster somewhere. And it says, we didn't do this because it's easy we did it because we thought it would be easy. That's kind of emblematic of what I call the dilettantification of venture capital, which is kind of what you were alluding to. Peter. I, I love kicking the crossover funds and like, why is T. Rowe Price investing in some of the stuff like, or Fidelity, like, okay, great, knock yourselves out with your you know 11% hurdle rate. But really the chaos capital that we saw in the seed stage and the barriers to entry really came down. And a lot of people just started raising funds after an entrepreneurial experience the same way, you know, people who don't know what they're going to do after college go to law school. It's just like a thing to do to like camp out for a few years and figure it out later. And then you get this, you know, OPM, you know, other people's money. It's a hell of a drug. And if you can raise a rolling fund or whatever, you know, great, boom, and then build a track record. And I think those guys had a really deleterious effect on the market because the marginal dollar sets the price. And so we had all these marginal dollars flooding the ecosystem and quite frankly wrecking it.
2: I'm okay with the fact now when we do CEO reference calls they're not also pitching me their fund. Because it's very <laughs> disconcerting. Oh, and not not just once. This wasn't a one-off occurrence. Like this was consistent enough that it was very present, which was, you know, you're calling to say like how's it going with your GP? Talk me through how you found them, how's the experience and they're like here's my operating and then oh by the way I'm raising a fund and you're like, "Well, aren't you operating? It's just just very hard to do both jobs well. And maybe there's a couple CEOs out there with multiple jobs that we all know of very publicly, but for the mere mortals of the rest of the world, I don't know, it feels like it's a focus.
0: What do you think happens with the scale players that really grossed up? So they're not the tourists, but what Andreessen's done over the last decade, Sequoia with the One Fund, some of these players that have really As you mentioned earlier, Chris, the reason why you had to be bigger than first round was to play with these big boys. What's going to happen with those models?
3: So one word we haven't mentioned in this whole conversation is liquidity. Like, show me the money. And, you know, when you've raised multiple funds and there's no money coming back and that's sort of part of your model, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be less money to go around to people who had built models on scaling pretty aggressively. And so maybe you pick a couple of funds and maybe you get penalized for picking a couple of funds because you just don't have the capacity to all those funds. I was talking to a leading endowment yesterday that said that 75% of their venture allocation was to three managers. That's a problem. Well, it's to three managers, each of whom has eight underlying products. And I can tell you mathematically that not all of those funds is going to be an outperformer. And that's part of the problem is you've historically had to do this pay to play thing. And that's not going to work going forward because people don't have as much capital to do that. And so unless I know everybody's jetting to the Middle East, but I don't think those people are that uh, stupid. Or promiscuous, but that's what
2: we hear. Oh, if we can't raise it here, we're going to Dubai. A hundred percent. We hear it all day long. I think there's going to be more LP churn. I don't know if these established multi-stage stack funds are going to raise significantly less capital. There might be some haircuts being taken. Tiger has announced that they're raising a slightly smaller funds, Things like that. It's still many bees, but I do think the makeup of the LP base will be different, and that there will be some endowments or foundations or whomever's that will do a handful of them, and then a lot of other folks. I'm hearing it are looking for the slightly less than multi-Bs opportunities and who are those folks and trying to figure that out.
1: But we fetishize in this business brands so much. And I think back to the worst decision I ever made in 02 when Excel came back and you, know, you looked at the numbers and the numbers were horrible. The list of people that said no to Excel in 2002 was immense. And this friend of mine was at another endowment on the outside looking in and he'd been like begging to get into Excel forever. And then he got the numbers and he had he called me up. He's like, Duvos, I just had an oh shit moment. Like these numbers suck. And so he sat out and then that fund ended up being the Facebook fund. And I look like a jerk, right? And we've all got like an example of that. And, and that, that really kind of tugs at my like, you know, Swenson-esque get off the bus one stop too early rationale. And I think for every person that steps away, there'll be Three that raise their hand for anything with even a mediocre brand. I'm like shocked sometimes at things that people from outside this ecosystem think are brands. And in fact, I think some things are brands. The further away you get from the Bay Area, the more robust their brand is. You know, another example, quite frankly, since, since we're talking about this, is like KP had been left for dead, and you know, I know people are investors there who are just like, oh, they, and now they're ripping off some good funds. So you know, kudos to them. I don't root against anybody. I just root for my guys more.
0: <laughs> so Beezer, would love to hear who you think the winners and losers will be through this cycle.
2: We've always believed that early stage is an interesting place to play. For all of the, you're coming in early, if the fund size is disciplined, however you want to find disciplined, and their go-to-market and who they are is authentic and connected, that that's, you look back through the historical numbers and you find that early stage is a, generally speaking, you can't ever say, everything's going to be awesome, but that's the place to play. And we're just going to continue playing there. And there are always new entrants that come in. And to Joelle's point, we always try to add a few every year. You have to look at it one by one. It's very hard to say, and this this is going to guarantee you success. Because if we could do that, that would be awesome.
0: So Joelle, you're playing across the stages and love to hear your thoughts on winners and losers.
3: I, I wish I were that smart. You know, venture is a business of outliers. And, uh, I think every manager we've had the privilege of been associated with will tell you that you just don't know sometimes which ones are going to be your outliers. So, take a company like Slack, which in its prior incarnation was Left for Dead and then after many sleepless nights decided to go for it and created, you know, a massive outcome for Excel among others, you know, by selling the company to Salesforce. So, I just think it's hard to know in venture and that The important thing that Chris alluded to is, you know, portfolio construction to make sure that you own enough of those winners that you've invested early. We share the same bias that Beezer does of investing early in being really disciplined about portfolio construction. I will say the other area in the growth equity space, which is, as we say, not Tiber Global, but you know, we started very early on with firms like Excel, KKR, and Toma Bravo, fortuitously in 2006 and 2008. That part of our portfolio was actually up last year. So those companies are capital efficient and um, well managed, disciplined, and can achieve exits. Actually, I was emailing with one of our managers who just sold a company for a five x. It'll be it'll close in March. So these tend to be smaller transactions. We're not talking in the multi billion dollar range. But again. I think smaller funds, you know with good discipline that create assets that have either strategic merit or attractive to larger financial buyers, you know up in the stack or portfolio companies of financial sponsors that are also acting as strategics, thinking about having multiple ways to win and being really disciplined about how achieving those exits, and so that's where venture is more challenged because it's not within their control, and it takes more time. It's really hard to time the cycle, and so. You just have to hope that, you know, within the portfolios that you have, within the great managers that we've had the fortune to partner with, that there's a couple of those outliers that are going to create spectacular returns because they're fundamentally disrupting a business. But you have to be patient.
0: So given the inability to predict this, as you look through the managers to their underlying portfolios, curious what you're excited about In terms of those potential outliers, what types of companies, what types of industries still have you very excited?
3: We skew very heavily towards enterprise versus consumer because we think it's easier to predict success when someone's writing a check versus how individuals respond to a product or to a a new social media engagement, et cetera. You know, every time I listen to one of these conference calls of public companies, I hear digital transformation is still in its early innings. So I'm going to go with that one. (laughs) The enterprise, you know, security, the amount of data, the way we do business, the fundamental disruption that's happened as a result of COVID in terms of how we live and how we work and what we expect and how we interact with technology. And I think, you know, the pace of change is only accelerating and the amount of data is accelerating.
0: Joelle, let me ask you uh, an unfair follow-up. Do you have a favorite company in your portfolio that embodies that theme?
3: Do I have a favorite company? Uh, You know, uh, no, I can't. I can't (laughs) single out my children. There are lots of them. I think there are lots of successful companies. And, you know, I don't want to do that. That wouldn't be nice.
0: All right, Chris, something you're excited about.
1: You know, one thing where I'm a little bit quirky is I have really leaned into we talk about innovation a lot, but I, I've even gone earlier and look at invention. That's the stuff that's going on, you know, on college campuses, in labs, at research institutions. So we've got actually a pretty sizable piece of our portfolio that's really leveraging robust invention ecosystems. We've got a fund that sits on, on top of the Media Lab at MIT. We've got a fund over at Berkeley Um, We've got a group that does material sciences stuff with some pretty interesting partnerships. And they're these really like quirky, like I almost call that part of the portfolio, the land of the misfit toys, because they're doing companies in some cases that nobody will ever hear of, but they're capitalizing them. The material sciences guys, you know, none of their companies will ever sell for more than $200 million. But when you can own 35% of the company for 750 k and you got a $25 million fund, the arithmetic works in your favor. It's tough because I do a lot of things that are not in my interest, you know, when we market our funds, like everybody wants to have, you know, all the logos and I talk to my investors about my companies and they're like, oh, I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that. And I'm like, yeah, but that thing could return 80% of our fund. So I kind of love that it makes it off market and it keeps me young.
0: are
2: My such smart compadres on this podcast. Yes, I agree with everything you're saying. So we wrote a blog sometime mid last year on consumer versus enterprise exits, and this is a data set that we've been tracking now for multiple decades. Anyone wants to look at the numbers that Joelle was referencing, we put it out there and it just shows you the consistency of the enterprise returns. It also shows you for the really big wins, the Coinbase's, the Facebooks, those are in the land of the consumer, but they're very spiky. To get those returns, there's, very, there's fewer of those companies. And the consistency of the portfolio of enterprise doesn't have some of those same ultimate outcomes, but there's just more of them in a basket. So to, you can construct portfolios the way Joelle was saying, which is if you play in a similar vein in enterprise, there could be some different potential return profiles. We look at these things very seriously and try to think through our portfolio construction in the same way.
0: If we were having this conversation, say a year and a half ago, There's no way we would have gotten this far without talking about crypto and blockchain. This is now something that no one's paying attention to. Joelle, I know you've been in the space, so I'd love to hear your perspectives on what you're seeing.
3: So first, let me say that my partners, Othel, Aram, and Marcos, spend a lot of time here. I say we have the best house in a bad neighborhood, and then I follow up by saying that's what the realtor tells you never to do. So I think the team has done an absolutely spectacular job in identifying really interesting opportunities. So let me say a couple of things. One, to your point, Ted, I think people are talking about it because every single investment committee is asking its staff, what is our exposure to crypto? And so 2% of the portfolio is now consuming 110% of the discussion at the IC. So we've gone from everybody talking about it in a positive way to everybody talking about it in an incredibly negative way. So what we say is it's the blockchain technology is fundamentally disruptive. I suspect it's going to take a lot longer to get to the promised land. I hope we get to the promised land because we're now in the crypto winter, which says people are really continuing to build really interesting projects. You know, I just read something where the big banks, you know, MasterCard, et cetera, they're all using blockchain technology. And, you know, there are fundamental problems that need to be solved. Why should trade settle not instantaneously? Don't you want to own a title insurance company? I do. I mean, that's just a license to steal money as far as I can tell. You know, why should creative people not benefit in the appreciation of the art that they create? I mean, there are lots of things that I think ultimately everybody always says, like, what's the use case? Well, I think we're going to get to the use case. It's just going to take longer. And so the amount of people that are continuing to develop and uh, the attractiveness of the space, those courses at universities, the number of people that apply to Andreessen School, you know, we are in a period of profound correction. Nobody likes the space. There have been a lot of terrible actors and a lot of fraud, which is Probably not atypical if you read about the quote robber barons of the earlier gen I mean, in every cycle they're fraud. So what can you do? But eventually this is a fundamentally important technology and hopefully we'll build some really good companies. But right now, everybody
1: hates the space.
0: Chris, that feeds right into your wheelhouse. Everybody hates something. How are you thinking about blockchain these days?
1: Blockchain cracks me up because as as Joel said, there, you know, robber barons and you go on Twitter and you see all these I'm happy that the the crypto clowns are gone. You know, the people who would type things like, you know, have fun being poor. But that said, we do have some crypto exposure, not a lot, but there's stuff that's being built that's really important. And I remember hearing Tim Berners-Lee talk about Web3 like a long time ago before people thought about crypto. I hated how Web3 and crypto became like conflated because what I think is really interesting is crypto is a data layer of Web3, but then you've got the interaction layer, and the compute layer. And we're starting to see all those kind of come together. I've had a particular interest for a long time in the interaction layer, new sensors, right? Like right now we're interacting with the compute world through keyboards and phones and other devices, but I'm so interested in passive sensors that can actually tell us things while we're not looking or while we're not focusing on interacting with them. And there's a whole world of stuff like that. We've got some managers that are really leaning into human-computer interaction that really starts to look like Web3. And yes, crypto becomes kind of the secure an identity-driven data layer of that. And that's what I'm excited about. But I think that's going to be like a 10-year journey to figure that out. Beezer?
2: Same, same. Um, We've had crypto exposure for a while now through some of our managers, some in generalist funds, some in dedicated funds. And I was actually on an annual meeting this week for a crypto-focused fund. And I think they're happy the tourists have left the building. Crypto winter is never, it's not pleasant for a lot of people. And the fraudsters are never pleasant for anybody. But This is to echo Joelle, it's a long-term. So we haven't shifted in that space. It's all about being disciplined and consistent and finding the layers to play in that work for your portfolio. We're a little more infrastructure layer one in keeping with how we look at things, but that doesn't mean to say we don't see opportunity in other areas.
0: All right, I wanna ask each of you one last question, which is what expression or cliche do you find yourself repeating in times like this?
2: Cash is kidding. No, kidding. <laughs> that was for you, Joelle, on the fundraising.
1: <laughs> you know, this is tough for me because my kids tell me that I speak in cliches, endless cliches. So I'm constantly repeating cliches. But for me, it's moolah in the kula, baby. Return that capital because that's what I keep telling GPs, especially those who are asking about fundraising. I'm like, you know, when you you know don't suboptimize exits, but when you see an opportunity maybe to sell into around, if you're an early holder and can sell part of your position, put that moolah in the kula.
3: Yeah. Well, you're mentioning of children. My children hated when I said this, which I said it all the time. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint, you know? <laughs> and by the way, I, I can't run because my knees are shot at this point in my life, but it's definitely a marathon. And I think people forgot that this is hard. And it takes a long time and you're building companies and it's not a sprint. And valuation does not correlate necessarily with progress or success. To your point, Chris, liquidity does really matter. So I'm going to stick with what I've been saying for
2: decades. (laughs) You know, a friend of mine who actually started his life as a derivatives trader, so a totally different world than venture capital, used to always say making money should be hard. And I think about that a lot, especially in the world that we just exited, where it felt to Chris's point that there was just no, no risk to be put on this. It is going to be hard, and it's supposed to be hard. And if it wasn't hard, the world would just be a fundamentally different place. Like gravity exists, and it's fine. Part of how it works.
0: Well, Beezer, Joelle, Chris, thanks so much for sharing your insights at this uh, particularly interesting time for the venture industry.
1: Thank you.
2: We
3: look forward to coming back in two years and see whether we made any sense. <laughs>
0: That sounds good. It's a date. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.